Well, we are spending some time together just thinking about what, what does it look like for us to, to live uh, individually, as a family, as a church family, like we are uh, for Fort Mill. What does it look like for us to live like a, a good neighbor? And, and to kind of focus us uh, for this morning, let me take you back just a few years ago. 2015, Starbucks had on its hand a, a public relations uh, challenge. One individual, a former pastor, self-proclaimed internet personality by the name of Joshua Fernstein, created quite the, the outrage online when he posted in a Facebook message, uh, complete with video, saying that Starbucks removed Christmas from their cups because they hate Jesus. And he tagged several media outlets, and uh, they quickly picked up on the story, and other folks began uh, posting and resharing uh, some of the things that were being thrown out there, and it was one of those things that went viral very, very quickly. The only problem was it had very little basis in reality. Starbucks denied the accusation. They assured worried Christians everywhere that they were welcome to say Merry Christmas to their heart's content and insisted that they did not hate Christmas. The reality is, for the six years previous to that, Starbucks, which doesn't identify itself in any way as a Christian company, has never put the words Merry Christmas on its holiday cups. Instead, it uses a wintry, vaguely holiday-esque imagery and language, including ornaments that say things like joy or hope, snowmen, and holly. But to see the outrage... You would think that someone had broken into the churches and desecrated the altars. News reports were saying that everyone was outraged about that and people were being interviewed. But Starbucks had never put Jesus or Christmas on their cups. They once had snowmen and some trees before going to plain red. So Starbucks hates Jesus because they now have cups without snowflakes? And by the way, Starbucks employees were never told they could not say Merry Christmas, but by the, that's not their job. That's not their job. I mean, it is actually the job of a follower of Jesus Christ to speak the gospel. It's not the job of a barista who might be Jewish and who might be secular, who might be a whole lot of other things, but it is the job of a follower of Jesus Christ to take the good news of Jesus Christ wherever we go. Just imagine, if you would, in the midst of all this going on and them trying to figure out the best way to respond to it, do you think anybody in some of those upper circles of Starbucks boardroom ever said to themselves in the middle of that, you know what, these Christians, they're so fair-minded, <laughs> they're so gracious, they're so thoughtful. <laughs> I don't think so. You see, for far too often, we have many, many people in our culture who are more familiar with what the church is against than what it is for. Now, if you were here last week, you, you heard, as I shared with you, the conversation I had with a reporter a few years ago. Yes, there are some things that we occasionally will say, we're against this because we are for people. Because we are for people, we would stand against something that would hurt people, that would harm people, that would be destructive to families. Absolutely. But too often, 
We engage in, in rhetoric and actions and outrage, sometimes over things that we have no business even being outraged about that aren't even based upon facts. And the, the cumulative weight of all that is that more and more we're becoming known what we're against instead of what we're for. And for an individual person, they may begin to conclude over time that the church is not for them because they don't experience in their life the church being for them. What if instead of outrage, we chose to engage? What if instead of, of powering up with outrage over every perceived slight that somebody posted online, we actually engaged with people who are far from God but close to us, people who are different from us, people who don't believe what we believe but are still created in the image of God. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that we back away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm just saying, why don't we live like Jesus Christ, <laughs> full of grace and truth, to be for people created in the image of God. When we talk about being for, there are just some basic foundations that we're building upon. And the first is simply this, that God sent Jesus to prove that he is for you. He sent Jesus to prove that he was for you. And one of the most beloved passages in the New Testament is found in John's gospel, John chapter 3, verse 16, and it starts with the word for. For God so loved the world that he did something. He engaged, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That, that God was so for you that he engaged, that he intervened, that he leaned in, that he did for you and for me what we could not have done for ourselves because he was for you. When Jesus talked about what he was bringing, he was the giver of life, he contrasted that with the enemy who acted as a thief. He said, for the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. Does that not sound like somebody who is for you? I came to bring life. I came to bring hope. I came to bring healing. I came to bring life eternal and abundant. God sent Jesus to prove he is for you. And if you are part of the family of God, if you have been adopted by his loving grace into the family, he has also surrounded you with people who are for you. He surrounded you with people who are for you. In Ephesians, Paul gives this, this description of, of this, this body, this body of, of Christ, this the being members of a household. So then you, no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. That's somebody who's for you. He's surrounded you with a household. He's adopted you into his family. He's given you citizenship in a new kingdom. He's surrounded you with people who are for you. And as people who are, are for one another, we live differently. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another 
just as I have loved you, that you also are to love one another. The part of the distinction of, of the people of God is the way that they love, beginning with how they love one another in the body of Christ, but also how they love those who are outside of the body of Christ. And that kind of brings us to the third four foundation, and that, that God has created you to be four other people to be for other people, even as God has acted in ways that he says, I am for you. I am, he was for uh, us in creation. He was for us in sending Christ Jesus. He's created us to live like we are for other people. And one of the classic teachings of that is a very familiar story to perhaps many of us in the room. It's tucked away in Luke chapter 10. And it's a story that many of us know is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I'm hopeful this morning that even though perhaps many, many, many of us are familiar with it or think we're familiar with it, that we won't let that familiarity kind of blunt what it is that God wants to say to us through these familiar words. There's the story, but there's also the context of the story. So if you have a Bible with you, and however you're carrying that, paper, electronic, uh, find Luke chapter 10. And beginning in verse 25, we kind of have a little context before the story. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's, he's coming, he's got this question, the kind of this, this, this legal religious question. He said to him, Jesus speaking, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, before we get to the story itself, it is important to understand the context. The, uh, the, the, there's this legal question about inheriting eternal life. This, this kind of religious scholar, this one who has is, is read and studied and interpreted uh, the law, uh, is, comes and he comes to Jesus uh, with this question. And the, the question is essentially, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as he is so often does in the Gospels, answers by asking a kind of a follow-up question. Well, what do you read? How do you read what's written there? And then the lawyer gives this reply that we kind of know today as, as the great commandment. The gist of it is to love God and to love your neighbor, to love God with all your being, to love others as you love yourself. And Jesus responds with a word of commendation. He said, he said, you answered correctly. This is a well-studied guy, A plus. You aced the test, right? And then he adds one other element. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. And that gives the context for a follow-up question from the lawyer and the story. Let's look at verse 29. But he, being back to the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer responds, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So the lawyer is asking this question, this question about neighbor. It's a question to kind of uh, narrow, right? Let's, 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 let's get the specifics here. I, I know you just kind of said I answered the question correctly and I'm to go and do likewise, but, but boy, that, that seems really broad. Can I kind of narrow the scope of responsibility here, right? Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells him a story. He tells him a story that would have been very, very realistic to that group of people, but also very shocking. As he tells this, this story of this, of this priest and Levite and a compassionate Samaritan, you have to understand the geography. Traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, you would, you would be going down to Jericho, or if you were going the other way, you would actually be going up to Jerusalem. There's actually about a 3,600-foot difference between the true over a 20-mile journey. Jerusalem sets up high, about 2,300 feet above sea level. Jericho, there's both an old Jericho and a new Jericho, was about 1,300 feet or so below sea level. So you have this tremendous tremendous uh, drop-off. But what made the, the journey hazard was not just the grade, but you wandered through areas that had uh, rock clefts and everything. It was, it was a perfect place for robbers or bandits. In fact, is uh, for centuries around this time, that journey sometimes had been known as the red or the bloody way because so many people had been attacked on that road. And so as Jesus is telling this story, immediately uh, the, the people can identify. And so you have a priest, a good guy, right? But he sees this situation, and he steers clear. He gives a wide berth, makes his way around. He doesn't get involved. And perhaps there's lots of reasons. Perhaps he would be ceremonially unclean and not able to carry out his duties. Perhaps he was scared. There may be other, other bandits that are right around. Who knows? It may have just been a few moments ago that they fell upon this guy and all these rationalizations, perhaps, and justifications. But whatever his thinking, he avoided it. And a Levite does exactly the same thing. Sees, avoids, goes around. And then there's a Samaritan. Now, this is where we don't get it. 
Because we've heard, probably many of us for so many years, the story of the Good Samaritan. So we almost connect those uh, words, right? Good and Samaritan. They must be connected, right? That would not have been how they would have heard it. A good Jewish audience would have heard that quite differently. In fact, is I've tried to think is you know what what would be almost the equivalent today? It would almost be like well the, the you know the Baptist preacher walked around the, the the Presbyterian kind of avoided, but then there was this ISIS terrorist who saw him and had compassion. And you go what? No, you're messing with our categories there. You're messing with our understanding of good guys and bad guys, black hats and white hats. But it was the Samaritan who leaned in, who took a chance, who acted in compassion. And so Jesus asked a question after the story. Who proved to be a neighbor? Not just had the right answer on the test, who proved to be the neighbor? And the lawyer knew he was trapped. (laughs) There's only one right answer here. I guess it was the one who showed him mercy. Couldn't even say Samaritan. (laughs) He recognized who was the neighbor. And then Jesus again pushed. Do like the Samaritan. You go and do likewise. Now, some quick observations. First of all, notice the lawyer's motivation. The lawyer's motivation in even bringing this whole thing up. And what Luke tells us, he had two different motivations. He first had a motivation to test Jesus, to come and kind of, kind of, all right, let's, let's see if I can trick him. Let's see if I can trap him. Let's see if I can, can catch him in, in some missed nuance of the law along the way. And there are folks that are always going to be testing along the way. He came to test Jesus. And then when Jesus asked him the question and affirmed him, his answer, well, then he had the motivation to justify himself. Did you see that in, in, in verse 29? But desiring to justify himself. You know, sometimes we can do this. We exegete a passage to excise our obligation, right? Let me, let me, let me kind of break that down into such fine parts that it no longer interrupts my life. It no longer disturbs me. There's a way for me to kind of work around it. We exegete the passage and we excuse or excise the obedience or the obligation. And so he's seeking to kind of dig into the passage, dig into the question of neighbor in order to excuse himself. The second thing to note is Jesus' commands. A couple of times in this exchange, the first after the answer in verse 28, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. In verse 37, as the lawyer answered the one who showed him mercy, Jesus said to him, you go and do Likewise, 
And what Jesus was seeking to drive home to this one who was so incredibly religiously knowledgeable was that faith that is genuine doesn't just know the right things, it does the right things. That a genuine faith is not just about having all the right answers. It's not just about having studied all the right passages. It's not even about being able to teach it clearly and compellingly to other people. But it's about what do you do? What do you do with the commands of Christ? What do you do? with the things that you're discovering? What are you doing with those promptings of God's Spirit along the way? Faith that is genuine doesn't just know the right things, but it does the right things. A third observation is that there are two ways to harm another. There are at least two ways to harm someone else. The first way is through harmful intent. And as Jesus told this story, it was pretty evident that these robbers, these bandits had descended upon this this unsuspecting person with harmful intent. They meant to harm him. They meant to take what he had. They they meant to, uh, to profit themselves at the expense of another. They acted in harmful intent. And for most of us, perhaps in the room now, we're feeling, okay, I don't recall any time in the past seven days that I really think I acted toward another with harmful intent. And yet Jesus says there's another way that we could harm another. And that's through harmful neglect. That there is one in need. And instead of engaging, you avoid. Instead of leaning in, You figure out a way around. You harmed not through intent to attack, but through neglect of a need. James, the half-brother of Jesus, put it this way. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. That yes, acting with harmful intent is destructive. But it is also destructive to not act through harmful neglect. To not do what we know we ought to do. It is not only harmful to others, but it is disobedient toward God and damaging to our relationship and fellowship with the Father. And I would suggest to you this morning, that too often the church's relationship with those who are far from God and not a part of a church family could be described in two broad categories. The first is adversarial. Adversarial. There are folks that feel like the church is against them. Maybe they even have sensed that, that God is against them because what they have experienced, that they have experienced, uh, these are the things you're against, that, that you're, you're, you're against me, you're against this lifestyle, you're against these choices or whatever it may be. And, and so they feel uh, an adversarial relationship with the church. And I think there's a whole another set of people that maybe they have a relationship that could be described as just non-existent. It's just non-existent. They don't necessarily feel it's adversarial. They just feel like it's not there. There's just not really a follower of Christ that's kind of leaned in toward them. 
in any meaningful way. And they see buildings and they see signs and they see news reports and they read of this scandal or that scandal and it kind of confirms some of their suspicions. That's kind of non-existent. You see, when we think about being four, we understand that we're called to be four people because God created people for himself. That God created people for himself. And that he calls us to be four people. And that doesn't mean approval of everything they say or do. It doesn't mean agreement with everything someone says or does. But it means that we act in ways that say we are for you. We act in ways that demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ. We communicate the truths of Jesus Christ in a way that is gracious and appropriate. We are called to be for people because God created people for himself. The relationship is not to be non-existent. It should be that God's people are for you. And they enter into, they initiate relationship with you. Fourth note, note the cost to the Samaritan. Sometimes we read this, maybe we're very familiar with it. We could probably tell the, uh, the, the gist of it, many of us, without even looking But think about the cost to the Samaritan, and then the cost comes in a lot of different ways. First of all, the cost of convenience, right? It wasn't convenient to stop and rearrange his schedule. It wasn't convenient to tend to his wounds. It wasn't convenient to put him on the back of your animal. It wasn't convenient to take him to the inn and make provision for him. It wasn't convenient. I'm sure he had other things to do that day than to, to lean in and to address this person's needs with compassion. Because I don't know about you, but what I have discovered is people are quite rude. They don't schedule their crises well in advance. Yeah, have you noticed that? You know, it's like, hey, I've got an opening three weeks from the day. If we maybe could squeeze you in there, right? No. It just happens sometimes. And oftentimes it's not convenient. It's not convenient. With the cost of safety. And this is not necessarily the safest road to travel in the beginning, but wait a minute. Are these people who just did this, are they still here? Or is actually this person part of the setup? Uh, you know, he, you, he, you come near to him and he's the first one that grabs you and everybody else jumps at him on the rocks, right? I mean, sometimes following Christ to be four people doesn't always put you in the places that feel the safest. It puts you in places that feel uncomfortable and maybe occasionally unsafe. He paid the cost of time. It takes time to stop and bind up wounds. It takes time to put somebody on your animal, and you can't ride the animal anymore. You have to walk. It takes time to get him to an inn and make arrangements. It takes time to, to take care of him that day. It takes time to make arrangements with the innkeeper. It takes time to care for others. It was the cost of energy and effort. And and these are challenging ones for us, aren't we? Because most of us are very busy and very tired, aren't we? (laughs) Our plates are so full. And sometimes by the end of the day, it's like, let's, can we just like, just eat and go to bed? (laughs) Or maybe not even eat, just go to bed. (laughs) 
it's just, wow. It takes energy and effort. And of course, very practically, it costs money. I mean, he had this oil, this wine, but he had it for himself. And who knows, maybe he had to even take some of his clothes and tear them to make bandages there on the spot. It took money to pay for that room. It took money to, to, to say, hey, if there's more, charge it to my account, right? I mean, it cost. It cost money to begin to help people. It cost a church money to be for their community. It cost individuals money to be for other people. And all of those costs are part of what it looks like to be a neighbor. And all of those part of the cost of following Christ. It's a question I came across a few years ago, and it's just disturbed me every time I come back to it. And the question is simply this. If our church went out of business, would the community around us even notice? And if it just kind of just shut the doors, right? Boarded up the windows... Would the community around us even notice? Now, we would notice. If you showed up next Sunday and couldn't get in, you would notice. Well, would the community notice? I mean, probably most of us would eventually find some other community of faith to connect to. Right? Or would the community even notice? Would there be an absence? Because there was this group of people who, okay, you know, kind of met there on Monroe White Street, that they were making a difference in their community. When the Hebrew people were in exile, God had a message for them through the prophet Jeremiah. For there were many that were kind of thought, well, we're getting ready to go back home, and this is not going to last long, and, and, and you know, let, let's, let's, just, let's just get ready to go. And the message from the prophet Jeremiah was, no, you're going to be there for a while. This is part of God's judgment upon the nation. And he said, and while you're there, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Sometimes we can fall into that mentality of we look at the world around us and it, it, seems, it seems harsh and it seems dark and it seems so adversarial and it seems like uh, people are going back and forth and it seems men, more and more it seems the culture seems to be drifting away from, from what some of us have understood to be kind of the, the, the underpinnings of our culture, certainly the, just kind of a sense of being tied to at least some uh, realm of, of a biblically informed morality and other things and there are times where maybe we get to that point we just say you know I just want to make it through and I'm kind of ready for Jesus to come back and if I can just like this I'm ready to go home and it may be that what God is saying to us is similar to what he said to the Hebrew people through the prophet Jeremiah you're going to be there for a while 
I have a purpose for you being there. Seek the welfare of the city. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. What does that look like? It looks a lot of different ways. But sometimes it looks like God getting the hold of a 30-something wife and mother that now we know is Mama Maggie. Mama Maggie was in some ways living the dream. She was married and her family was doing extremely well. She was a well-to-do Egyptian woman. She loved traveling from Cairo to Europe to attend parties and, and to go shopping. But in her mid-30s, she and a group of friends from church decided to visit one of Cairo's garbage slums. Some 60,000 people live there, many of them Christians, who gather and sort garbage in the most appalling conditions for just a few coins a day, barely enough to live on. As she spoke with parents and hugged the children in the garbage dumps, Maggie's life was transformed. As Ellen Vaughn wrote in her biography, Maggie fell in love with the privilege of being a part of their lives. She began visiting the slums every day and founded a ministry called Stephen's Children, named for the first Christian martyr. Three decades later, Stephen's Children now helps 33,000 children through home visits, camps, vocational training, schools, and medical care. And the stories that arise from this woman's work are amazing. In fact, his Mama Maggie was at the Global Leadership Summit just a, a few years ago, shared some of those stories. We're going to be hosting that Global Leadership Summit again here in August. Among those stories, Mama Maggie hugged a little boy named Kareem. She placed her hand over his heart. She knew at once that something was wrong. Mama Maggie asked a Stevens children leader to take Kareem to her brother, who is a cardiologist. He discovered Kareem had a hole in his heart. He needed surgery to correct the problem, but his desperately poor family couldn't possibly afford to pay for it. That's where Stephen's children stepped in, and they paid for the entire cost of the operation. And once Kareem recovered, ministry volunteers visited him regularly, brought the family food, and invited Kareem to take part in a Stephen's children camp. Then there's the story of Sharif. Another boy who attended Stephen's children's camp. Just before Mother's Day one year, Stephen's children volunteered, volunteers visited his home to give him a little money so that he could buy his mother a gift. But nobody was home. The leaders went back several times, although they normally don't do that just because of the, of the, the great numbers and need. On their fifth visit, they saw Sharif arriving with a baby girl in his arms. The baby was sick. But her father had no money to pay for the medicine she needed. When Sharif's father discovered how many times the leaders had come back to his house, he began to cry. The volunteers gave Sharif the money, who immediately handed it over to his father, who said, buy baby Sarah whatever she needs. The father said, for 10 years, 
I've never set foot in a church. I believe that God had forgotten me. But because of what happened today, I will go back to church. Could it be that many people are convinced that the church and God is not for them because they have never experienced the church being for them? There are thousands upon thousands of other stories. But let me just give you one more. In fact, it's seven stories. In 2015, when too many followers of Christ, at least in name, were caught up in arguing about the design of Starbucks holiday cups, in that same year, ISIS terrorists beheaded 21 Coptic Christians. Seven of those 21 Christians had come to faith through the influence of one woman and the Stevens children's camps. Could it be that when the people of God decide to start living like they are for their community. That lives are changed, families are changed, and eternities are changed. So I'm going to ask you just to dream with us over the next few days, weeks, months, I hope even years. And just to begin to think, what if What if we started acting like we are for Fort Mill families? What if we started genuinely acting like we are for Fort Mill neighborhoods? What if we started acting like we were for our community leaders? We were for teachers and schools. What if we started acting like we were for Fort Mill businesses? What might that look like? And this is not just kind of a rhetorical question. I want you to dream. I want you to think. I want you to share. Hopefully in everybody's worship folder as you came in this morning was a little card that looks something like that. It just says, for Fort Mill idea, what if we? And it's going to be in this week, it's going to be in next week, different ways to share along the way. What I'm just going to ask you to do is to begin to think and dream. And we do ask if if you're comfortable, please give us a name and an email because sometimes it's not clear when somebody writes something exactly what the idea was and and it's good to be able to follow up there along the way, but it's also kind of a point of accountability. It's not you all ought to, but (laughs) maybe this is something we could do. And so I'm just going to ask you, to dream, to pray, to think in the presence of God. What if we? And I can't promise you we'll do everything right off the bat. Some things may be better fits than others. Some things may be better for this season, some for another. Some may require even larger partnerships, but we can start. We can start. 
And so I'm just going to ask you, write some of these down. You can put them in an offering basket in an offertory time. You can put them kind of in those uh, wire kind of metal containers there, collection points on the doors on the way out. You can drop them on the table where there's sign-ups going on for the March 16th service days. But just let's start dreaming and thinking together. And please hear my heart on this. Listen, I am so excited for what we do internationally. I mean, we, we, are, we are one of the, the largest giving and going churches in the entire Southern Baptist Convention when it comes to the missions giving. I mean, certainly in the top 10, if not the top 5%. Right? I, I mean, I, I am delighted by all the things we're doing. But as we've just been trying to seek the Lord, it seems like we can press in here a little more. That we could be a little more for here, not to the neglect of there. It's not either or, it's both and. And so I'm inviting you to dream, to think, to propose, to see what God might stir. Because as I said last week, I think probably some of the best ideas are sitting in the room here right now. And so I'm just going to ask you, what would it look like if we started acting like we are for, that we were seeking the welfare of our city? I'm looking forward to dreaming and to doing together. Let's pray, please. Oh, Father, how we thank you that when we talk about four, we know we're talking your language because you are the God who has proven that you are for us and that you have, have provided for us in so many ways and, and most perfectly and most importantly in Jesus Christ. And Father, that you have left us here for a purpose and, and you want us to seek the welfare of the city. And Father, that you, you have given us opportunity and even in the moments you've given us ideas and thoughts and burdens and passions and, and Father I, I, I am with just kind of just with anticipation of what you're going to stir and what you're going to do in the days and weeks and months and years ahead and so Father we just want to say right here right now we're open we're open to whatever it is that you want to do in and through us and Lord we just don't want to be satisfied with knowing the right thing to do But we want you to show us and empower us and challenge us to go and do likewise. So I'm just going to ask you to take these next couple of minutes and just sit in the presence of the Lord.